0: Okay, good morning everyone. It's great to see you all. Um, a reminder that our learning this morning is dedicated Chaim And I also want to ask everyone to please have in mind um, Rabbi Steinsaltz, who apparently had a stroke um, Whose name, I'm looking for his Hebrew name Adina ben Rivka Lea, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz should have a Rafu Shlema. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure uh, how severe it is, but um, someone shared with me that he had a stroke late last night, and so he should have a complete <laughs> Rafu Shlema. Yeah. Yeah. One of the uh, outstanding rabbis of our generation. Okay, we're on page Mem Gimel. We have been plowing through the Nesiva Shalom, the Slonim Rebbe's perspective on Emuna, our weekly dose of Emuna. There's a lot of repetition, a lot of redundancy in our conversation about amuna, but that's a good thing. It reinforces what we're learning, it reinforces what we already know because as we've spoken about so many times, amuna is not necessarily a function of a breakthrough. It's not an aha moment. Oh, that's so compelling, that argument, that's it. Now I believe. I've taken the leap of faith. Amuna is not about the aha moment and the breakthrough. Amuna is much more about a sense of mindfulness. It's remembering what we already know. It's the the character trait of interpreting everything that's happening in life through the prism of Emunah. All the good, all the bad, all that we need, all that we're grateful for, all the stress, all the anxiety, whatever's happening in our life at any given moment, it's remembering that there's a Ribbono Shalom, that He runs the world, and it's trying to be mindful over and over again of Hashem in, uh, in our lives. You know, it's an amazing thing. Yesterday I was in Washington. We had this uh, fly-in for the day. 22 BRS members went 4 a.m. yesterday and came back uh, 1 a.m. last night. Um, it was a long day in a cold and rainy place. We should all be very grateful we live here. So, um, <laughs> one of the lobbying meetings we did was with an amazing congressman from North Carolina named Mark Meadows. He's in Western North Carolina. In his entire district, there's apparently one synagogue, which is not friendly to his um, support of his version of support for Israel, which is sad. But anyway, when we came to his office to lobby, there were still votes going on on the floor, and so uh, he wasn't there yet, so his wife was there. And I asked her, you know, do you always come in to your husband's office? And she said no, but the staff knows that if there's anyone coming to lobby about Israel, if it's anything to do with the U.S.-Israel relationship, I want them to let me know because I want to be there. She... I mean, it was amazing we ended up meeting with her. He came later, but her love of Israel was just unbelievable. She was describing her trips to Israel. She was this is a non-Jewish woman from western North Carolina and her emuna, which is why I'm sharing this with you, was just extraordinary. Because, you know, we all, despite our even outward appearance as observant Jews, in lobbying meetings, you know, you dance around the God word and where does God fit in and separation of church and state and all that stuff. But here you're sitting there, and the congressman's wife is talking about all about, well, it says, whoever blesses the Jewish people will be blessed, whoever curses will be cursed. America's blessing is only because they've taken care of Israel. The day they stop supporting Israel is the day America goes down. And so, and all of this, uh, you know, all that kind of language. So mm-hmm. the, the point is that it's, it's a function of mindfulness. It's a, funct- it's a function of conscientiousness. It's a function of remembering to interpret the world, to actually believe our Torah the, as much as some of the non-Jews. Believe our Torah. We're on Gimel, page Mem Gimel. And until now, last time we spoke about the um, balance between what we call a Munapshuta, the leap of faith, not a sophisticated analysis, research, investigation, evaluation, but more, I'm taking the leap of faith. There's a God, I'm assuming He's here. I'm believing in him, I'm investing in him. The tevye, of fiddler on the roof type of faith versus the philosopher type of faith. where You <coughs> now analyze and investigate and research and you know, turn yourself into a pretzel trying to figure out is there evidence for Hashem's existence. And the Salam Rebbe said that the lower level is the investigation and analysis. When you feel that you need it to be proven to you. When you feel you need the evidence, that's the lower level. The higher level is when you just feel. Maybe you can like, he didn't say this, but maybe you can liken it to marriage, you know? If you sit there with your spouse and you say, let me evaluate if I love you. Let's see. Well, you do this and I do that. We have this in common. That's a little bit different. We have that goal, but maybe not entirely aligned. And I've done an analysis. I've done an evaluation. And yes, I've come to the conclusion, I love you. I've come to the conclusion based on my analysis that we have a future. That this is a real relationship. Versus the person who just is overcome with emotion, a feeling of bond, of closeness, of connection, of of a mutual shared destiny, of two halves being a whole, who may not be able to articulate it in words, and may not be able to bring the compelling evidence, and may not be able to prove the love in the sense of evidence but knows it in their heart to be true as much as they know anything else in the entire world. And so the higher level of knowing Hashem's existence is to hear the symphony and the harmony that's being sung all around us by the natural world and by history and by everything that is happening and not to have to feel, I need it to be proven, I need to evaluate the evidence, but to be able to simply feel and know something in one's heart. The calls that my gimel. The right hand column where the Gimel is. Rambam. Ki Baloch I remember the, the Salonim Rebbe last week talked about why the Rambam, when the Rambam talks about the Mitzvah of Anochi Hashem the Rambam talks about the Mitzvah of Amuna. The Rambam writes it. He doesn't... Uh, uh, I'm just looking for what the Rambam's quote is. The Rambam talks about Ani Mamin, the I believe, right? Not I have evidence, but Ani Mamin, the way we codify the 13 principles of the Rambam, that are the foundations of our faith, is Ani Mamin, I believe. Not I've analyzed, but I believe. Because the real mitzvah of knowing Hashem, and it's a mitzvah. Every time you interact with Miss Meadows, Mrs. Meadows, and she says, God loves the Jewish people, you get a check, emunah, check, Every time you're in traffic and you say, I'm sure Hashem did this for a reason, it'll all work out, I'm not exactly sure, this is frustrating, and I'm going crazy, but I'm sure there's a reason, check. Every time that you are turned to Hashem for help, every time you express gratitude, it's a we don't think of it as a mitzvah. We think of lulav and shofar and Shabbos candles and towels and tefillin, and amunah is just like, that's for philosophy class. That's for when I go to the Shir Wednesday morning. But amunah too is a mitzvah that is incumbent on us. For the Rambam, the mitzvah is not the analysis and investigation, it's the leap. So the Rambam used two conflicting languages. In one place the Rambam writes that we have to have Da'as. We have to know Hashem. On the one hand the Rambam uses the language of Amuna. And elsewhere, the Ramam uses the language of Yediyah. Leida sheyesh sham One has to know that there is a first cause, that there is a creator of the universe. So, the Sabbath had been bothered, well, which is it? Is it the leap of faith? Is it that I believe? And belief is without necessarily having a lot of evidence. Or is it a knowledge? Which is it? A person can believe in something that not only lacks the evidence to support it, but even has evidence against it. At Jeffrey Dahmer's trial... I'm sure his mother was in the audience saying, I believe my son is innocent. Ah, you just listened to three weeks of evidence and fingerprints and video and proof and witnesses and DNA and that <coughs> your son is a murderer. I believe he's innocent. So belief suggests a lack of evidence, not only a lack of evidence, but even when it goes against the evidence. So on the one hand, the Rabbim says, you got to believe in God. On the other hand, he employs the language of (laughs) You have to know. Knowledge is, well, I've analyzed the evidence in front of me, I've investigated it, I've dissected it, and I've come to a conclusion, which is a knowledge. So which is it? So the Son of Rebbe is suggesting that a belief can be so strong, in fact, that it takes the form of knowledge. I know something to be so true. I don't really care what anyone has to say about it. I don't care what evidence you bring against it. I don't care what you want to suggest undermines it. I know it in my kishkas to be so true that nothing, 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 nothing is going to make me backtrack or make me abandon that knowledge. Right? I gave the example last week. I don't know that any of these examples are perfect parallels, but I'm doing the best I can. So I gave this example last week. You know, like a mother who, who senses something might be wrong with her child. She goes to every doctor on the planet. She's undergone every test on the planet. All the evidence suggests that nothing's wrong. But she says, I know in my kishkas with an absolute knowledge, something is wrong. And nobody's going to make me stop mm-hmm. feeling that till I get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. So you can have something which is counter the evidence, and yet you know it to be so true. You don't need evidence. It transcends evidence. It supersedes evidence. It's beyond the need for evidence. Like love. I don't need evidence. I don't need to put it in words. Instinctive. It's instinctive. It's intuitive. It's, it's so absolute. It's in your kishkas. I told you that when men put on their tefillin, when we wrap around the middle finger, we use this pasuk. God, you're putting a ring on my finger. It's like every morning you put your tefillin on it, you're getting engaged to God. It's a sense of marriage to God. So, <laughs> We are betrothed through emunah, is Hashem, and I know Hashem. So which is it? Emunah or Yediyah? Is it belief or is it knowledge? You know, the girl turns, you believe you love me or you know you love me? What, what do you mean you believe you love me? I'd like to, I'd like, I propose to you, I think we should get married because I believe I love you. <laughs> believe you love me? where you know you love me. Which is it? So here, it's both. I believe I love you, God. But I also know it. The belief is so strong, it's so irreversible, it's so impenetrable, that it takes the form of knowledge. We say this in Aleinu, it's a Pasuk in Dvarim. Kodesh Baruch tells us, know this today, and place it in your heart. That the Lord is our God in the heavens above and the earth. So which is it? If it's viadatahayam, if you're supposed to know it, where do you know things? Where do you know things? You know things in your brain. You know things in your head. So why would the Pasuk, we sing this in Aleinu, why would the Pasuk, hayom, why would the Pasuk, where you're supposed to know something, know it and place it Where? In your heart? In your, why in your heart? Your heart's that place of emotion. It's erratic, it's emotion, it's passion, it's, it's, it's evolving, it's fluid. Knowledge is in the brain. Emotion is in the heart. So why would it say know that there's a God and place that in your heart? Why would it say it that way? I think the answer is, you know, it was, it was once said, I don't remember by whom, that the greatest distance between any two objects on earth is the distance between our head and our heart. true. The greatest distance between any two things in the world is the distance between our head and our heart. We know a million... We shouldn't eat the chocolate cake. We should get enough sleep. <laughs> you should stop doing the whatever. We know in our head a million and one things <laughs> that struggle to trickle down to the heart. And the Gemara says that a person can't go to war if they... Uh, hasach ben tefillin the tefillin. Any man who speaks between putting on the tefillin of the head and the tefillin of the, the of the arm and the tefillin on the head. It's a very funny Gemara. The Gemara equates that... That Avera. The Gemara says, Avera yada. who is exempt from battling, going to war? Somebody who has Avera Biyado, somebody who is, um, violates egregious indiscretion, and therefore we can't be confident in their merit in war. And what's the egregious indiscretion they're guilty of? It's not immoral, it's not unethical, it's not that they violate Shabbos in public, it's not that they this, it's not that they that. What is it, says the Gemara? They talk while they're putting on their tefillin between the tefillin of the arm and the tefillin of the head. Now, okay, you're not supposed to talk. You put on the tefillin of your arm, you put the tefillin on your head, you're supposed to do it without interruption. Okay, I get it. Halacha, it's important. Good. It's so bad. It's so terrible. It's on par with these other things. That's the Averish HaBi That the person who's done something so terribly wrong. So I once tried to suggest that maybe the message is that if you speak between the tefillin of the head and the tefillin of the arm, it means that there's no synergy, there's no connection there's no contiguity between what you think in your head and what you put into action. Right? The whole idea of the tefillin of the head is that we direct our thoughts, our emotions. Our f- I'm talking about the tefillin to a woman, Sharon, a woman, but you take your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions and you direct it towards Hashem and the tefillin of the arm is opposite the heart. You're taking your emotions and your feelings and directing that to Hashem as well. But the arm represents the world of action. The head represents the world of thought. And the idea of not interrupting and not talking between putting them both on is that the world of thought and the world of action are integrated. They flow. You have a thought and you put it into practice. You bring it to reality. It's not that you have thoughts and they're divorced from and apart from and interrupted with reality. There's a flow. So a person who speaks in between, it means that they could know all these things in their head. But when it comes to putting it into action, they're not as good. So what happens? You're going you're to bring out to war somebody who talks between the two tefillin? So his... his um, direct officer in the army is going to say I need you to do X, Y, and Z and they're going to say well, yeah, that makes sense yeah, I know how to do that that makes sense, that's good but they're going to talk it means they're going to interrupt it's never going to, they're not going to execute on the order so the idea of the head and the heart is that one is the place of thought and analysis and conclusion the other is the place of, of action where we're the place of motivation of drive so Data hayom know it where? in your head You are capable of knowing about God's existence as much as you're capable about knowing anything in the world. But now, the fact that you know it's not enough, the people who smoke know all the evidence that smoking kills you. Mm -hmm. The people who eat unhealthy food know all the evidence that high blood pressure, diabetes, that it's going to kill you. The people who do (laughs) X, Y, and Z have all the evidence that it's self-destructive. And yet... It never filters down to the heart. Mm-hmm. The farthest distance in the world is between the head and the heart. And we as Jews are supposed to connect the head and the heart, symbolized by tefillin, symbolized by other mitzvahs that we have, is to create this synergy, this, this synthesis between the head and the heart to be working together in tandem. So that's why Kosh Baruch Hu, the Pasach tells us, know it where? In your head. Know it to be absolute truth, irrefutable. Know it. But now take that knowledge and create a synthesis in your heart so that your heart is driven and motivated by that knowledge and that there's no barrier or break in between. Another word about this, Yediyah. I don't remember if we've spoken about this. If we have, this is, I think, our 29th installment of the Amunashir. So if we have, you'll, you'll stop me. But the notion of Yediyah, I think, is very significant because as much as here the Salam Rebbe is talking about the leap of faith and to intuit and to have instinct and to simply feel the pulse and the rhythm and the harmony of the world and to conclude that there is a creator and that there is a being behind it, as much as he's saying that, and it's true, we should also be comforted and find confidence in knowing that there's also overwhelming evidence for Hashem's existence. And I think the reason that the Torah uses the term Yediyah is because what it's saying is, if you investigate the evidence and and you investigate it objectively, too many people investigate evidence with a bias. See, if you come to the conclusion there's a God, then the extension of that conclusion is that the God created you for a reason. You're not here for the purpose of your pleasure. You're not here for the purpose of whatever you want to do that day. Carpe Diem sees the day. You're here for a mission, for a reason, for a purpose. You have something to accomplish. I'll tell you something amazing we saw yesterday, but I reserve the right to use it again in a drusha later. <laughs> we were taking a tour of the Library of Congress, This amazing tour that the library um, organized for us. The Library of Congress at large. And then they took us to the Hebraic Treasures from the Library of Congress. A display of rare books in honor of the visit of the Boca Raton Synagogue. And they created their own... They took out these unbelievable... You know, the first book printed with any portion of the Hebrew Bible from 1477. It was unbelievable. Anyway, just incredible books. So we're going around, and they have opposite and display. In cases, they have the... um, earliest printings of the, of the Bible in, from Mainz, Germany. Um, and one of them, I forgot what it's called, I forgot the name of the book. So one of the people with us asked the, the librarian, the curator, the person taking this around, what's the most rare book that you have here in the Library of Congress? Most rare book. They've got millions, millions and millions and millions of books. they, they um entering the system of the Library of Congress Every single day is ten to 15,000 new books. It's just unbelievable. And now they're actually part of the Library of Congress now are the tweets of all presidents, which means the next four years they're going to have to expand the, the memory system. There's, there's, um, it, was just, it, was, it was an incredible day. We took a tour of the private library of Thomas Jefferson. They have his actual collection, his library. And to me, the most fascinating part was the religion section, which included Hebrew books. He you knew how to read Hebrew. He had sfarim. And you look at the um, breadth of the scholarship of what our founding fathers knew, the scholars they were, the brilliant minds they were, their understanding of politics, of religion, of the universe. You see the svarim they have. And I'm not going to finish that sentence. But you see that (laughs) what they had, the founding fathers, (laughs) (laughs) it's what our rabbis would call Yuridas Hadoros. You read the Sardoros, the diminishing of the, de- of the generations. So they asked him, what's the rarest book that you have here in the Library of Congress? And he gave an answer which startled me and gave me great Russian material. He said, what's the rarest book I have that we have? Well, this book, and he pointed to this Bible we were looking at, he said, this book is handwritten from Mainz, Germany, from the 15th century. It's unique. There's no other like it. So it's not just, it's the most rare book. It's unique. It's the only one of its kind. And that got me to thinking that every human being is unique. They're the only one of their kind. And we go into a Library of Congress and we say, What's the most rare book that you have? We're so curious to see it, to get a picture with it, to understand it. And we interact with human beings every day who are not rare. It's not that person's rare. Every human being is unique, they're one of a kind. There never was anyone before them like it. There never will be anyone like them again after it. We are a unique expression of God in this world. Every one of us is unique. And we're so casual, flippant. We take it for granted, the uniqueness of other people. We should walk up to every human being. Can I get a picture with you? You're unique. You're you're not just rare, you're unique. You know, what are you worth? That's unbelievable, you're unique. Whatever that unique book is in the Library of Congress worth... They bought it for a million dollars during the Great Depression. But whatever it was worth, they had to have a whole special meeting of Congress, whether they could afford it, the Great Depression, a million dollars. So, but whatever that book was worth, imagine whatever human being, the inestimable worth, how invaluable every human being is, because we're not just rare, we are, actually, we are actually unique. So every human being, is I have no clue how I got onto this. So anyway, but back to so evidence, evidence for God's existence. So, examining the evidence. So, Judaism asserts, not only this Pasuk that we 've been studying the Adata Hayom. know it know it in your head and place it in your heart, but we also have the when inspired take out the torah that 's what they use instead of even so our own we use it on Simcha's torah and some shuls sell it for a lot of money you have been shown la not you 've been shown la oh you 've just left Egypt and lived through ten miracles and stood at the base of a mountain and God spoke to you and you have been shown all of this so that you can believe. It's not what it says. It says you've been shown all of this. Why? <inaudible> Ladas. To know. To know. So that's the word always, <inaudible> We can know. Knowledge is in the head. And we can know that God exists as much as we know anything. What do I mean by that? How do you know the coffee we put out this morning? A number of you are drinking that coffee. Are you out of your minds? How do you know that there's not poison in the coffee? Mm-hmm. How do you know that we didn't put cyanide in that coffee to take you all out and create a massacre this morning at the <laughs> women's Amunashir? <issue? laughs> How do you know? Chalilavachas. <laughs> How do you know? You may not trust me. You trust Jehovah. She would never do that to you. How do you know? Because you have overwhelming evidence, overwhelming evidence that leads to the conclusion that it's safe to drink the coffee. That the Dunkin' Donuts would not sell it if it were dangerous because it would undermine the whole company, that the Goldbergs wouldn't take the liability, we love all people, we love you, we would never (laughs) want to hurt you. You have a lot of evidence that you put it together and you say it's safe to take a sip of the cup of coffee. And the same amount of evidence that exists to allow you to sip the coffee or to cross the street and not think that, you know what, maybe you have a blind spot. And maybe there's an optical illusion and maybe you missed the car that's really zipping along and you're going to step into traffic. Whatever evidence that exists that allows you to take that medicine you picked up at the pharmacy or eat in the restaurant or cross the street or drive the car and believe the brakes are going to work. Whatever evidence that leads to the knowledge that you have to operate in every area of the world is the same knowledge you can have that God exists. What I mean to say is there's no absolute knowledge of anything. There is no absolute knowledge when you take the medicine from the pharmacy, it won't kill you, or you drink the cup of coffee, or you cross the street, or you step on the brake or the gas, or whatever you do in life, there is no irrefutable proof. There's no absolute knowledge. Everything is weighing the evidence. Sometimes there's very little evidence, and so you don't do it. Sometimes there's overwhelming evidence, and so you don't even think twice about it. But all of life is about calculating the evidence and coming to conclusions. And what I believe the Torah is telling us is the same amount of evidence, the same pile of evidence that allows you to comfortably conclude you could drink the coffee, you could cross the street, you could take the medicine, you could drive the car, is the same evidence. If you would objectively evaluate the question of God's existence, you would come to the conclusion, yes, He's here. Now you'll say, well, there's no absolute proof. To which the answer is, there's no absolute proof of anything. There's only an abundance of evidence and by the way why is there no absolute proof of God's existence that's not by accident it's by design and that's for sure we've spoken about before why did God not create a world where there's absolute proof he exists wouldn't it be so much easier you woke up in the morning God texted you just a reminder I'm here don't forget the daven you know you're worrying you get a text from God a Facebook messenger from God God likes your post on Facebook you know Don't forget, I'm here. Interact with me today. Meet up with me today. Wouldn't life be simpler? Why is there no absolute evidence that God exists? What would be missing if God played his hand? If God revealed himself? Free will. Free will would be missing. And the entire purpose of life is free will. What gives life meaning and purpose, and even more, what gives life pleasure. The pleasure is the result of making the right choices, of doing the right thing. What allows one to feel good is when they've made the right choice. So free will is the essence of life. It's the foundation of life. And if God would reveal Himself, our free will would be suspended. You wouldn't really have the choice not to obey Him because He'd be right in front of you. Nobody ignores the policeman who's right in front of them why do you speed? Because at that moment, your brain tells you that police don't really exist. They don't exist on this highway. They're not hiding behind the bridge. You know, I'm late. It's justified. It makes sense. Whatever your brain has to go through in order to justify your speeding, you do it because the cop's not in the lane next to you. But when the policeman's driving in the lane next to you, you don't speed. Your free will at that moment to speed is suspended. And if God were revealed in this world, our free will to disobey Him would be suspended. And God cherishes our free will. Without free will, there would be no meaning in life. For God to create a world of robots, of automated beings who are programmed to do the right thing, what kind of world would that be? You know what makes your marriage meaningful? What makes marriage meaningful is that your spouse didn't have to do what was an expression of caring about you. Maybe they don't always do that expression of caring about you, which makes when they do do it, even more meaningful and pleasurable. What makes a relationship with children beautiful and meaningful is that it's not. Pro- I mean, some you know we think and we joke. We wish we had a keyboard and mouse and we can program. You know, clean up your room, do the homework, take the dishes from the table, and pre-program it, and it'll be beautiful and do exactly as we say. But it, it loses the 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 life source if it's pre-programmed. It's the free will. The right choices yield a sense of closeness and intimacy and connection and bond and love and meaning and happiness. The wrong choices yield a sense of distance and alienation and of being apart, of not wanting to be together. So it's the free choices, free will is what gives life meaning. God understands that He created the world, God designed that. And therefore God says, even though the cost of hiding is that you may use your free will to decide I'm not here, it's worth it because if you use your free will correctly, the connection, the closeness, the love... Make it worth it. Make it worth it. In in fact, free will is so fundamental and axiomatic to the world, it comes with another horrific, horrific, horrific byproduct, unintended consequence, and that is the existence of, of evil. Of evil. God says, it's so critically important to me. The world only has meaning. There'd be no purpose. I'll call the whole experiment off. There'd be no purpose to the world without free will, That for there to be free will, it means that man can exercise free will even in the wrong direction. Even to build extermination camps. Even to kill innocent children in Syria. Even to... Human beings can use that gift of free will, the most precious gift that we have, for the wrong reason. And if God would intervene and interfere and always stop it, and that free will could never be used for bad, then it wouldn't be free will. (laughs) It would be manipulated. It wouldn't ever be free will. There are times, as he did with Paro, and you have to talk about why he did and why he doesn't, when we wish he would, and what it does. But on the whole, the, the power of free will, the force of free will is so great that it even allows the existence of evil. So God created a world in which He wanted us to have free will. That's the only way that there can be meaning. And in order to have free will, He has to hide. He has to be concealed. We have to look for Him and search for Him. Like the story of Shira Rashiram, which is so elusive, so hard to coordinate, and he's hidden, and we're yearning and searching and longing. Because when we find him and we make the choice, so so he's not there's no absolute proof that God exists. However, viadatahayom or vi'atahare salad das, in the end of the day, God says, You know what? I want you to intuit and I want you to instinctively know I'm here. I want you to believe. But if you're struggling with that, take a look at the evidence. And if you took a look at the evidence you will see that as much as the evidence supports that you drank the coffee, cup of coffee at your house, as much as the evidence supports that you took the medicine from the pharmacy and didn't believe it was laced with cyanide, as much as you crossed the street and didn't think there was an optical illusion you were going to get run over, as much as you got in the car and you didn't, the evidence supported that the gas and the brakes were working, as much as the evidence supports anything else you're doing in life, it supports God's existence. Now you're probably curious to examine the evidence that I'm claiming Overwhelmingly supports. And we can do that another time. But I want to go further in the Slurm Rebbe. But my point is, the Torah is using that via data Hayom. And what the Slurm Rebbe is saying is that when you examine that evidence, when you examine that abundance of evidence that supports God's existence, that's the easy part. You know what the hard part is? The via data Hayom, that's easy. What's hard? To put it in your heart, to be mindful. True, corner me, sit me down with a cup of coffee, talk about whether God exists, and I will tell you absolutely. You know, as much as we think that religion is suffering in America, the, the research still shows that, to, to a large extent, most Americans believe in God. But they believe in God in the theory, in the theoretical. The viadatta hayom. You believe, Hi, I'm calling on behalf of, uh, I'm taking a survey, do you believe in God? Viadatta, yes, I believe in God. But the Vahashivosa Elvavecha, good. Now tell me about how that impacts your life. What do you do in your life that reflects that you believe that there's a God? What are you doing in your life? How does that inform and inspire and guide your life? How does that create your ethics, your priorities, your lifestyle choices, your aspirations and your goals, your boundaries? Great you believe. V'yadah How about the Vahashivosa Elvavecha? What are you doing about that in your life? I've told you before also that there's three categories. Somebody could be a believer on the one extreme, or a knower. They could be an atheist, or they could be the middle category, an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who hedges. I'm not sure if God exists, I'm not sure He doesn't exist, I don't know. I'm agnostic. I'm agnostic. You could be agnostic in theory, but in practice you're either leading your life with the assumption that God exists, or you're leading your life with the assumption He doesn't. I think Rabbi Kellerman makes this point in Permission to Believe. You're either leading your life as a believer or as an atheist. You can't lead your life as an agnostic. Your lifestyle, your choices, your priorities, your values, your boundaries, are either guided and informed by a belief that there's a God and He has expectations of you, or the belief that it's all random, there's no God, there's no afterlife, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's anything, and therefore you can do whatever you want. There is no option of leading your life according to an agnostic. So you can't hedge when it comes to real-life, practical lifestyles. You're choosing one or, or the other. So where we struggle and where the hard work is and why we get together weekly for our emuna support group is the V'hashevo Se'el of Avecha. Yes, I know God exists. But now you're stuck in traffic and you're cursing it out and you're worried and you're going to be late and what's going to be and nothing is right in the universe and blah, blah, blah. Now you're in a fight with someone and you're seeking revenge because you don't understand that everything happens for a reason. Now you're not grateful to God because amazing things have happened and you think they're just coincidences and they're random. Now, in the practical, when the rubber meets the road, in the the practice of daily life... Is there the vahashivosa I am interpreting the world, I'm interpreting life like Mrs. Mark Meadows. That there's a God, and if you do what He says, and you bless the people who bless, that congressman's wife, if you bless the people, that, that there's a God, and there's an organization to the universe. So knowing it in the head, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's the easy part. You know what? When I get dressed today, the choice of my wardrobe is going to be informed by the fact... There's a God. He has expectations. I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to live and engage the world in a godly manner. Every time I open my mouth and I'm about to speak, I'm thinking about, am I doing it in a godly manner? Everything I put in my mouth, every business choice I make, every interpersonal interaction, every, every single thing that I do. Yeshaya Hanavi says, lift your eyes and look. Who created all of this? Right? Part of the evidence for God's existence is to understand that things don't happen by accident. Things don't come into existence by accident. The third law of thermodynamics is called entropy. That order goes to disorder. People get old and die. Coffee, the molecules spread out and it gets cold. Food gets moldy and decays. Order always turns to disorder. It's a rule of nature. It's a rule of science. It's called entropy. Go look it up order goes to disorder, it explains why people die while things decay, and so on and so forth. Whenever, one of the arguments, it's not a Jewish argument by the way, whenever you see disorder go to order, you know there's a designer. In other words, left well enough alone in nature, according to the natural world, the natural order of things, order goes to disorder. When you see disorder go to order, it means somebody did it. Right? So, if you see print on a paper and it spells words, that was disorder, a paper and ink, turning to order. If I put this piece of paper in front of you and I say, you're not going to believe what happened. I had nothing to teach you this morning. And I wasn't sure what to do. And I had a bottle of ink and a blank piece of paper and I knocked it over. And when I tried, look at this. We have these words and these paragraphs and this great section here to study together. Isn't that incredible? You would say, you know, Rabbi, you feeling okay? Is everything, everything okay? What's going on? So, whenever you see disorder go to order, the same is true, I say, look at this home. Let me tell you a story, nobody built this home. But, you know, Hurricane Andrew, we were about to build a home, and Home Depot delivered all these uh, uh, materials, and then the hurricane came, and the materials, and it just, it built this house. Isn't that amazing? You see that painting on the wall? Nobody made that. You'd laugh. We know intuitively, we know irrefutably, nobody will ever convince you otherwise. No one will ever convince you. They could argue from today until the end of time that ink spilled on the paper or that the wind built the house. No one will ever convince you when you see disorder go to order that it was by accident. Nobody will ever convince you of that. You always will know. You'll always know that there was a designer, an artist, an author, that somebody built an architect. You'll always know it. And yet we look at this world with the cosmos and the... the, uh, Stars and the constellations and the many galaxies. We look at the intricacy of the human body. We talked about the lymphatic system last week. That we look at how the human body. We look at all this, which is disorder going to order. Uh, Yeah, I'm not really convinced that there's a designer, an artist. I have no. You know what? I'm agnostic. It's. It's. I'm an atheist. It's random chance. Something (coughs) happened. Not sure exactly what. We're all here by accident. There was a big bang. I don't know what initiated the Big Bang or I don't know what initiated the material that the Big Bang resulted in this world, but I believe that there was a random bang that exploded and poof, disorder turned to order and here we are, this perfectly functioning system of the human body, these multiple galaxies of the universe and what we would never believe about the painting, the building, the book, the sculpture, the artwork, we are happy to conclude about the human body and the universe, and the galaxies. That makes no sense. That's just one example of the evidence that supports God's existence. And that's what Yishai HaNavi is saying. Yishai HaNavi says, we don't need philosophy 101 and 102 and 103 and advanced and PhD and level. Just lift your eyes and look around. You see the way everything's working? The ecological system and the human body. and the You, know, you see everything and the way it all works perfectly. And that if it were off at all, Tamar, my daughter is going to talk about it. Her bat mitzvah. We've been learning about about uh, together, and she's going to talk about seeing Hashem through nature, seeing Hashem through history. If you understand the calculation of if the sun, were is that much closer to the Earth, there couldn't no be existence of human. There could be no human existence on Earth. It's only because it's positioned exactly at the distance it is, and the rotation is exactly as it is, and everything is only then can human existence. If we're off, if we're a little bit further we'd freeze to death. If we were a little bit closer, we'd burn to death. It has to be exactly where it is. But that's just a chance happening of the Big Bang. It just happened to place the sun and the earth exactly where they are. Of course not. That's as ridiculous as believing I knocked over a bottle of ink. So Yeshaya Navi says, Mi If you want to know where you come from, that's like saying to your child, you know, or a child says, how do I know you're my parents? I think that I just came to be out of nowhere. I don't have parents. I just came to be. It's, it's absurd. Just lift, open your eyes. We're your parents, for God's sakes. Lo ne'mar v'avinu. Right. Or it's not. We don't have to pay your tuition. Lo ne'mar v'avinu eilu uru. Says the Rebbe, the Yeshaya Hanavi doesn't say, havinu uru'u. Evaluate all of this and see. D'hainu b'chinaz r'i'yash sikhlis ki ro'a mamash. You know, now we're going back to the idea that stop, stop worrying about the evidence. Don't examine the evidence. Right? His, the thesis of the Son of Rebbe is just follow your intuition. Look at the world and you'll see God is calling out to us in every leaf and flower, in every human being, in every act of nature, in every beautiful moment. God is calling out to us. Just extend your antenna and feel it. It doesn't say Vahavinu, walk around the world and evaluate and analyze and investigate. It says Ru'u, open your eyes. Just open your eyes and see and feel and intuit what you already know. Right? We talked about last week, my bubby's favorite postdoc, Ta'amu Ru'u Kitovashem. Just taste it. Coca Cola's methodology. Just taste if you taste it, you'll know it's true. I'm not going to start telling you what the ingredients and why you should and why it's delicious and it's sweet and you'll enjoy it and it, uh, just just taste it. Just stop talking to me and taste it because I know that if you taste it, you'll see it's good. Well, Baba Cherebi, just like the candle, put on its filler, Just taste what it's like to do a mitzvah and you'll see it's transforming your life. Just taste it and you'll see that it's good. Ata ben Adam, l'chol munas yotrecha ha'omedes the Raivet uses this language, You, Ben Adam, you human being, place your heart on all these things, and open your eyes and see the picture of your Creator opposite you. Don't see a flower, see God who created a flower. Don't see a human being, see a Tselmelo Kim, an expression of the Almighty. Don't open a history book or open the newspaper and read about history unfolding. See Hashem's guiding hand in that unfolding of history. Mm-hmm. We're living through extraordinary times. We're living through counterintuitive times. We're living through times that are so unprecedented that every media outlet, every pundit, every political analyst blew it because they followed all the trends and they followed all of the history. And they were unable to predict what would happen because that's how out of alignment everything that's happening. Spent the day in Washington yesterday, the APAC offices, one of our members of Congress, Republicans who are happy about the results. I'm not going to use their names. Very high-ranking Republicans who are happy with the results, who've been in Congress since the 1980s who may be of Cuban-American descent and the best for Israel ever and for (laughs) Miami. But
1: you know what? When when asked, when asked, what do
0: you think we can accomplish in the next administration that might be more favorable to Israel? Her answer is, we know the promises the president-elect made. Let's see what's going to happen. Who knows how everything's going to pan out? Nobody can predict the future. Nobody knows what's going to be. Nobody. We're living in extraordinary historical times where... There's clearly forces at work which history will look back and try to understand but as we live through they were unpredicted and we can't predict what will happen next. Don't that's Hashem's guiding hand in history. What? Don't forget about the Cubs. Yeah. Oh, the Cubs winning. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that, but that, that's a revealed miracle. I was talking about hidden miracles. I'm referring to hidden miracles. The Cubs win is a revealed miracle. <laughs> 108 years. Yeah, for the people who don't know the Cubs won for the first time in 108 years. Um... And they curse came of the goat. <laughs> they overcame the curse of the goat. The goat was one of the co-sponsors of the Hashgamak Giddish at Shulah Shabbos. Um, so you see Hashem's guiding hand in nature. Don't see a flower. See Hashem. Don't see a human being. See a akim. Don't read about the election results and how everyone miscalculated and didn't predict it and they were wrong. See, Wow. I'm not sure what Hashem's up to. I don't know what's going on. I'm not sure what His plan is. But it's clear as day to me that Hashem, there are forces at work here. Wow, something's going on. I don't know exactly what. Interpret the world. Su'u Just open your eyes. The raivid. Atab adam. Place your heart. Open your eyes and see the picture of your Creator. V'ru Me'ine Kohai. And if He's hidden from your eyes, then know that He's found in your heart, and He's revealed in your thoughts. He's in your heart, and He's revealed in your thoughts. Hashem is in our intuition, He's in our kishkas. I come back to the the insight of Revolchanan and we'll conclude with this. Remember Revolchanan asked, how can you demand every Barambat Mitzvah child to fulfill the mitzvah of Emunah? My Tamari is turning 12. She's going to be obligated in mitzvahs. And one of the tariag mitzvos, not according to the Bahag, but according to the Rambam, is Anochi Hashem Lokecha. So the day she turns 12, coming up in a 10 days or so, say, Tamar, now you've got to be really careful. It's on you. We're no longer accountable for you. Make the bracha before you eat in Davin and no Lashon Hara and be kind to your siblings and blah, blah. It's all on you. Oh, and don't forget, believe, no, not believe, no, v'yadata hayom, at harais at No, there's Hashem. And Tamar turns back to us and she says, One second, Abba. Aristotle spent his entire life struggling to know if there's a God, and I'm 12 years old, and you want me to know? <laughs> One second, Hashem. Bless you. Great philosophers poured over this question of is there a God, and I'm 12 years old, and you want me to know? And Rabbi Chanahuasim said, Amuna is not something you have to learn. Amuna is something what you're born in your instinct, in your kishka's knowing. Don't unlearn it. So you're right. If we had to teach it to a child at 12 or 13, it would be an unfair expectation. But the mitzvah of Amuna is not to teach, to first teach the child at 12 or 13. Says Rav Chanan in Kobetz Ma'amaro, says Rav Chanan, the mitzvah is, don't unlearn it. Don't, make the child so callous, so cynical, so hardened to the world, that now they say, oh, I'm not sure there's a God. Reinforce that first 12 or 13 years of their life with gratitude and with faith and with Hashem language. So that time they're 12 or 13, they say, yeah, I still believe in Hashem like I did all my life. So it's not that they have to learn and do something new. It's don't undo what they've known all along. And that's what the <laughs> Islam Rebbe is saying too. It's in our hearts. Stop blocking it. Stop denying it. Stop preventing it. Let it flow. It's in there. Feel it. See it. So that's our avoda. Our work for next week is not only via data, not only to know it in our heads, but to do the work of hashibosa el elavavecha to put it in our hearts through daily life. Please remember this Sunday, eight forty-five a.m. to one-thirty is the annual Biaristert Women's Health and Halacha Day. We have better sessions than ever. Twelve sessions to choose from. Four sessions in each of three slots. Open the best part of the entire day, by far, are the opening remarks by Rebbez and Yochaveid Goldberg at 9:15 a.m. But free breakfast, free lunch, keynote speaker at lunch, every topic you can imagine, designed for women of all ages and backgrounds. 8:45 to 1:30 this Sunday. You to, you're free to you say you could come for one class you could come just for lunch you, could, you can't spend the whole morning or you don't like all the classes you could just kind of come and skip around and but, but sign up and register so we don't have to register in to advance and there. so then not much food to get have a great yes. week